सदाशिव समारंभा शंकराचार्य मध्यमा अस्मदाचार्य पर्यता वंदे गुरु परंपरा Now, as expected, this topic generates a little heat because it's going to look at areas that we could possibly improve, which can make us a little uncomfortable. So, as you would know, that the word tapaha or tapas comes from the word also root word of heat. So, heat can do two things: it can burn you, or it can create light. What I would like you to do is to treat this session in a way that it can possibly create more light than heat. that's a plan so let's look at the word a little closely now when you look at the word authenticity from a indic perspective there are many words that may come to your mind but i will i've chosen one particular word which is very meaningful in all of the indic traditions which is what we call as prama how many of you have heard this word right so it is also the root word for pramana pramana here means a, a means of a valid means of knowledge a valid means of knowing something So this is perhaps one of the best words that we can find from the Indic tradition that represents authenticity. And the word prama also means a couple of a uh, couple of other words as well that are linked to it. For example, evidence, truth, authority or validity. So all of these words could also mean prama. All right, so let's look at the valid means of knowledge from the Indic perspective. The first one is pratyaksha. We use perception. which is basically using our indriyas our five sensory organs to understand the objects that we see so this is the first pramana as we call a first means of knowledge the second one that we have is anumana which is inference when we see smoke behind a, a mountain what do we infer there is fire that's anumana and the third one is very unique while the first two is shared among many other secular philosophies or even scientific approaches the third one is unique which is agama Now the the third dimension of a third pramana called agama <clears throat> makes the indic dimension very very unique. Now here the agama can be either verbal testimony meaning someone giving sharing knowledge through a verbal means or it could even mean textual testimony which is using a scripture or what we call as shastram. So if you realize this is found in the yoga sutra as well as the vyasa bhashyam you can find a little more if you're interested you can look at this a little deeper. Now if you look at agama pramana if you look at it a little more deeper it is also very interesting because in the bhasha the bhasha karavyasa mentions two important keyword apta and shabda that contributes to agama so the word agama means that which is really passed down <clears throat> if you look at it literally so <clears throat> the word <clears throat> the the apta dimension meaning the person who is sharing has to be a trustworthy person a very reliable person So in the context of yoga it means a person who has experienced that vastu or experienced that reality so that is apta the second is shabda what is being heard it can be even scripture so scripture here becomes the recorded literature of teachers or even seers rishis who reveal this to us so these two dimensions constitute agama now let's look at the next one which is anubhava which is a very key dimension in yoga in all yoga systems anubhava occupies a very central position because that is the proof of the pudding all right so that is that is very key so you can see that the anubhava which is which culminates in what we want to achieve as a goal depends on three important contributors agama anumana 
And finally, Dhyana Abhyasa, which is the practice of meditation. Of the three, naturally in yoga systems, the third one becomes very prominent, which is you, we can have Agama, we can use Anumana, but if we don't practice meditation, it is of no value. So that's why we realize in the yoga systems, especially in Patanjali Yoga, I'm now quoting, I'm using Patanjali Yoga as a reference, the practice of meditation is critical to attaining the result or the goal. All right, so now if you look at from an Upanishad Yoga perspective, it's quite different. If you look at it from an Advaita Vedanta perspective, it is not just practice, it is Agama. The Agama directly has the ability to make you have that Anubhava, which is called sometimes Aparoksha Anubhava, which happens immediately. In the Brihadaranika Upanishad, this is called Shravanam Manana Nididhyasanam. Three important uh, approaches to uh, arriving at that Anubhava. So this is a second dimension, a different approach. Here, the practice of meditation is only confined to one particular practice, which is Nididhyasana, which is technically not a meditation. Uh, in, in the way that we define meditation in the Yoga Shastra, especially Patanjali Yoga. And the, schematic, the scheme is also different because in Upanishad, it, we are talking about a non-dual darshana, Advaita darshana, while in the Sankhya metaphysics, we are looking at about a Dvaita darshana. There's a dualism involved. When there's a Purusha and Prakriti, that's there always eternally. If you look at the third one, this is the most challenging one, which is the Hatha Yoga. Now, the problem with Hatha Yoga is we don't have an epistemology. When I say epistemology, how do we understand what Hatha Yoga is? It's a big challenge. While a lot of times when you look at Hatha Yoga, it aims to get some kind of Siddhi. I'm using the word Siddhi in two senses. The first, second, first sense is miraculous powers or powers that we cannot explain. The second one is having attained a goal, Siddhi. All right, so in both senses, there are two types of Siddhis that we find across all types of Hatha Yoga literature. The first type is a kind of Siddhi that takes place in the level of the body. I call it Kaya Siddhi, all right? So that is like, for example, you get your health gets better. You know, you feel that you can walk faster. Your heart rate improves. You know, your blood pressure goes down. It is all bodily Siddhi. The, the other one is mental mind. Now, again, the word Samadhi in this context will appear again and again in Hatha Yoga literature that you will find. And again, the key thing that delivers this is Abhyasa. Practice, 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 and practice. And the therefore, because there is a practice focus, the epistemology, the theories of knowledge behind Hatha Yoga, as of today, is very weak. We don't have it. Because all Hatha Yoga texts do not say the same thing. That's the big challenge that we have today. So keeping this in mind, there is also another framework that we need to look at when it comes to authenticity, which is, a lot of you may be familiar with this, which is the Anubandha Chatushtaya, which is whenever we study, undertake a textual study, we look at these four dimensions, Adhikari, Vishaya, Prayojana, Sambandha. So you can see the translations here. Now this is very important because two important dimensions, two, two important aspects of this framework is very critical. First one is Adhikari, who is qualified to study the text? Number one. Number two is the purpose. Now what is it intending to deliver? All right. So these two studies, I mean this framework can also help us to appreciate what um, authenticity is. All right. So this is another framework that I'm going to use in a while. So the research question that I have, and this research question comes partially from the work that I'm doing right now. I'm doing my thesis on the Shiva Samhita, which is purported to be a Hatha Yoga text, which I'm disagreeing. That I'm saying that it is not a unified Hatha Yoga text. So from that uh, research on, on studying the Shiva Samhita, I did I draw all of these uh, results. All right? That's what I'm presenting right now from my thesis. 
So the question now is, what are the problems of authenticity? All right, let's look at, so I've identified 11 problems. All right, I'm going to briefly go through very quickly the 11 problems. Number one, let's look at the myth first. Now, there is a, there is a prevalent myth that there is a West and an Indic way of looking at knowledge. There is this particular myth that we have. And you know what's the myth about? We think that whenever something is Indic, it's always authentic and it's always true knowledge. And the other perspective that we have is when it comes from the West, it's always unauthentic and appropriated wisdom. Now, we need to drop this myth when we want to look at authenticity. Because these are assumptions that we are making. It, or rather, I would say, very, very, perhaps, generalizations that we are making without having enough evidence. So I would like all of us, I would like to invite all of you to drop this prejudice, if at all there is in your mind, when we explore this. Let's explore this as human beings and see whether what the yoga, what the yoga shastra is presenting to us makes sense to us. So the problems, let's look at the problems right now. Problem number one, the criteria of validity. Now, scientific evidence is usually limited to just these two pramanas. Can you see that? In a laboratory, that's what you do. You look and then you, you infer, that's it, and then you conclude. But it does not include agama. We don't take into account the testimony of a teacher or the testimony of a shastra or a text. Now, that, come, that brings the first problem. What is the validity of agama? We don't know till today. We have not recorded the validity. We hear that through teachers sharing this. Oh, pramana, shastra pramana will tell you that which is adrishta, that which cannot be seen is revealed by shastra. But have, it, have we validated in research? We don't have that. But we hear this in spiritual discourses. So that's the first uh, problem that I've found uh, in, the, in, the, in the research world. Problem number two, privity versus nivrti confusion, which is a big challenge which is a big blind spot in our research. How many of you have heard of Privrti and Nivrti Dharma? Put up your hand. All right, not many. I'm not surprised. Because this is not a discussion that has taken place enough in a lot of textual work, in a lot of discourses as well, and even research presentations. Privrti Dharma refers to the life of a person who seeks Dharma, Artha, and Karma. This is the common man who wants to be comfortable, who wants to make money, who wants to live comfortably, and he likes to also have enjoyments, but following ethics, dharma. So this is pravrti dharma. The nivrti dharma is the quite an opposite of pravrti dharma. It's a life of renunciation, sannyasa. That means in nivrti dharma is a very unique, that's the word nivrti, to, to let go. So the nivrti dharma is reserved for sannyasis, primarily. This distinction has not, has not been very clear in a lot of research. Now, why am I saying this? Because yoga traditionally was meant for the Nivrti Dharma. Can you see that? Yoga was traditionally for people of Nivrti Dharma. But today, how many of you are sannyasis here? Very interesting, isn't it? What does this tell us? It tells us a lot. A knowledge that was developed and taught for sannyasis are now being used by people who are not sannyasis, who are living in Parvati Dharma. This is another big gap that we have in our research. So if we find that, that but there is some hope, when you look at the medieval Hatha Yoga texts, Hatha Yoga texts that were written after the 16th, 17th century, we find that there is an opportunity for grahasthas to engage in the practices. So we see that. We see something happening in the Hatha Yoga literature. So here is an evidence for us or some kind of opportunity for us to explore this. But today in the modern world, 99% are the people of the, in the Pravati Dharma practicing teachings of Nivrti Dharma. And this also has a significant drawback. 
Now, yoga, yoga research has shown that people who meditate naturally become less interested in the affairs of the world. Am I right? So what's the implication of this of people like you? Good question. Have we measured that? Have we studied that? So we need to also study that to see whether there is, to see whether there's enough evidence or whether the way that we need to present yoga, like the way the Hatha Yoga texts have done, all right, can be a very good way to present Hatha Yoga to the mass. So another problem that we have right now. Now, the third problem is the source of Hatha Yoga, which is a big challenge. I'm showing two books, Roots of Yoga by James, James Melanson and Mark Singleton, and the Yoga Sutras, Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, a biography by David Gordon White. Now, what do they say? Look at this. The first one, Melanson and Singleton say that the Hatha Yoga roots are Buddhistic, but they do not give evidence. Right? They say it's Buddhistic. That means the earliest root of Hatha Yoga is Buddhistic, but they don't offer any evidence. The earliest text that they cite is a Jain text. It's a Jain text. It's not even a Buddhist text. So it's, it's, not, very, it's not very sound, that conclusion. Number two, David, God, David suggests that the Yoga Sutra has a significant Buddhist influence and perhaps even a Buddhist text. That's what he claims. Till today, no rebuttals. We don't need to rebut this. As a learner, what we need to do is to find evidence. That's all we need to do, right? There's, 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 no, there's no ulterior motive or agenda here. We need to find out. We need to, we need to find out. We need to expand the knowledge in these areas. So these are two, two, another problem that we have, the source of Hatha Yoga. We don't know, actually. Till now, we don't know. I'm going to tell you why we don't know in a while. Now, the source of Hatha Yoga, we know in the Shastras. I'm sorry for this because it's, my file got converted earlier. Now, the source of Hatha Yoga we see as coming from the Shaiva and the Shakta Tantras. How many of you know this? Right? But do we have your evidence? Good question. We don't have enough evidence. While we suggest, while we see that the yoga in the Hatha Yoga is very similar to the yoga in the Tantra. We see that. We see that the, the yoga in the Hatha Yoga is also similar to the yoga in the Agamas. Where we see the similarity, but there is no clear study till now. Another problem that we have. Now, the third problem, not problem three, expanded. Look at this. Melanson and Singleton did something very great. Look at the chronological categorization of the Hatha Yoga texts. They did this in their work. But we don't have another scholar, another researcher doing another independent approach to, to, to actually verify this. We don't have. But it's a laudable task. Definitely a great task that they have done. You can find this in the roots of yoga. All the texts have been categorized uh, in, in, a, in a chronological sense. Measurement of outcomes is the fourth problem. Now, the fourth problem is this, not measuring the evidence of outcomes. Now, we're not measuring the evidence of outcomes. What does that mean? So, in, in psychology, we sometimes measure effects through state and trait. Are you, I mean, how, how many of you are familiar with this? State and trait, yeah, very good. So, this is one way that we can measure the outcomes of yoga. Whether is it a temporary effect or is it a long-staying effect? Uh, whether it has uh, the ability to be so-called permanent. Now, we have not measured the effect of compassion. We have not done that. We have not measured the ability to concentrate. Have we measured the levels of concentration? Have we measured responsibility as opposed to reactivity? When someone meditates, we don't have evidence. We, don't, we have not measured acceptance, samatva. We have not measured. So, what is the, what a good example we can learn is the mindfulness work that I do, I have... 11 different scales to measure 15 different things. And I have scales. 
and it can be done through self-reports. So what can we learn? Can we create self-report questionnaires to measure this? So can we do that? So this is uh, something for us to think about. The fourth problem. Problem number five, interactions with other darshanas. Uh, limited studies between on the confluence of Advaita Vedanta and Hatha Yoga. We don't have enough evidence to show Advaita Vedanta and Hatha Yoga are connected. We don't have that evidence. We also don't have enough evidence on the confluence of Hatha, uh, Advaita Vedanta and Patanjali Yoga. Patanjali Yoga, we also don't have enough evidence. It, it, it sounds very interesting because you hear this in popular discourses, but we don't have evidence. It, you, people like me, for example, if I'm standing, I'm telling you, you know what, these two are very related. You take this as truth and you go and share it with another person. But there is no evidence. But we need evidence. Uh, there is also limited studies on interdarshana discourses. Uh, Every one of you know there are six darshanas, am I right? Right, that's all we know, but there are more than 16 darshanas recorded. Madhusudana Saraswati records 16 different darshanas, vidyas. And there are some other acharyas who have recorded more darshanas. So we are limiting ourselves by just saying there are six. So we need to explore. Like for example, the Shaiva darshana is not in the six. Where did it go? All our temples are based on the tantras and agamas. It's not in the six. Isn't it obvious? Right, it's not there. Problem number six, samadhi. Wow. Big word. The, perhaps the most confusing word. Why? Because we don't have, we have limited experiential studies on the type of samadhi. We're not recording it. Because the term samadhi is used differently in different texts. Patanjali Yoga's Asampratnyata Samadhi is quite different from the samadhi in Hatha Yoga. Because Patanjali Yoga is a dualistic system. Hatha Yoga is a non-dualistic system. So the samadhi is different. In Advaita Vedanta, the word that is used is Nirvikalpa Samadhi, not Asampratnyata Samadhi. You see that? Again, we're not looking at the differences. So, in Buddhism, Samadhi is also there. Have we done enough research to distinguish the different types of Samadhi? No, but yet, you see the word Samadhi used very, very loosely. We use it. We don't have it. So, next, critical addition. So, when I was doing my research, the biggest challenge I had was I could not find critical, critically edited text on Hatha Yoga. The only source that I found today was Kaivalya Dharma of Lonavla, which you are doing a great job. And I, but that is not enough. We need more and more critically edited texts of Hatha Yoga because we don't have enough of them. A lot of texts that we have is just passed down through different manuscripts. It has not been critically edited. There's another problem. Problem number eight, mindfulness. There's a severe absence of Indic perspectives on mindfulness, which is a growing phenomenon. One of the most rapidly growing phenomenon because this is a sphere in which I am working as well. So, but you know what? We don't have, current works are limited to secular and Western approaches. Even I had, a, I had a conversation with a professor from Nimhans and he was telling me they are doing lots of research on mindfulness. I said, fantastic. So whose standards are you using? Kabat-Zinn, which is a Western approach. So have you explored the Indic approaches or definitions of mindfulness, of what mindfulness is? Because we, the word smriti is a root word, but that, that is not the exact mindfulness that we find in the secular and Western approaches. All right, we don't have that. So the other thing is we are severely lacking in bringing the convergence and divergence of Indic systems and secular mindfulness. There's not enough research as well in these areas. Problem number nine, yoga Vedanta. Right, there's another sub-school where Vedanta and yoga comes together. All right, now there are texts that are yoga Vedanta. For example, Vedanta Sara, Jivan Mukti Viveka, and Mokshopaya. Mokshopaya is the earlier text of Yoga Vasishta. Right, those who have studied Yoga Vasishta, now, 
the, the text that created Yoga Vasishta was Mokshopaya, but we don't have enough research. We don't even have a translation or even a publication that we have in a critically edited manner. It's not done yet. So we don't have that. We need more here. Number, number 10, experiential focus. Now, too much emphasis on the experiential dimension of yoga appeared to discourage scholarship among practitioners. Because why? 100% practice, no need, to, no, no, need, no need for theory. Now, when we take that position, what happens is people tend to go away thinking that practice is enough. Me having to study a text is not, is not necessary. So what happens? The level of scholarship goes down. So this one big problem happens when we say 100% practice and no, not, no theory is uh, required. But one good thing about the experiential perspective is it allows us to stay away from personality-centered vishwasa. You know what's vishwasa? Kind of a loyalty that we have to our gurus, to a particular person. So for example, if Kadresan says this, it must be right. That is called vishwasa. That's not healthy for scholarship. So we need to, experiential focus helps us to, to disassociate from personality and focus on the experience. Now that helps us to go beyond personality-centered, what I call vishwasa, loyalty, and looking at knowledge, which is called anubhava, through the various pramanas. The last one, the last problem, is the, the lack of solution-focused innovation in yoga. What does this mean? Now, innovation is not something new to yoga. I think some, we heard some speakers. The asanas have evolved. If you look at the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, there is only a single-digit number of asanas, as low as even four, in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. But as, as, as we go into 16th and 17th century texts, you see double digits. For example, Hatha Ratnavali. It's, a, very, it's a, a later text, and that has more asanas than perhaps Hatha Yoga Pradipika. We don't, so what does that tell us? That is innovation. Can you see that? And then we have Krishnamacharya, a great innovator. Now, we are benefiting from this innovation, but the question is, have we stopped our innovation? We need to keep innovating, and what does that mean? We, need, we, don't, we don't see enough yoga contributions, innovations in the area of psychotherapy, psychology, business, people development, and mental health. We don't have enough. We need to do more of that. There's a big, another problem. We need to look at, why do I mention this? I'm going to talk about it a little later. And the last question, can we look at the secondary aspects of the prayojana of yoga? Because the prayojana of yoga is moksha, mukti, am I right? There's a purpose of yoga. But the secondary aspects is, in the path of attaining moksha, we become more compassionate, am I right? Our health becomes better, am I right? Maybe we can focus better in our job, am I right? These are the secondary aspects. We need to pay attention to the secondary aspects as we approach mukti or moksha, if that happens to be a goal, so we don't have that. So problem number 11, these are the 11 problems. So all of them relate to one archetypal problem. What is the archetypal problem? All of them come to one problem, one main problem that somehow seems to influence all the 11 problems. What is that? Now this is the map of Singapore. Now when I say Singapore, people think of the coronavirus. All right, so this is the island where I live. This is the island that where I was born. My parents were also born here. All right, so in this island, there are three types of people at any given time. The residents, the tourists, and the tour guides. The same happens to India as well. Am I right? There is always residents, and then we have tourists, and then we have tour guides. There are three different categories of people. Now, each one of them, um, each one of them is very different. Now, the residents have a different outlook towards their living. Am I right? In a country. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly. 
Now, tourists have a different outlook, am I right? Temporary visit. But they may know more than you actually about the country. Am I right? Yes. Now, tour guides are best. You know why? They know both. Yes or no? They know more than you and they can also guide you. They have a lot of information. So, tour guides. So, the island has this. Now, look at this now. Now, these are the comparison. The residents represent practitioners of yoga. The tourist represents the scholars of yoga. The tour guides are the scholar practitioners of yoga. Can you see that? Now, this is very important. But what we have today is, you look at all the, uh, look at the, like, the practitioners are sadhaka. Scholars can be called shrotriya, panditas, or even PhDs. And the scholar practitioners, I call them jignasu. The Gita uses this word. Jnani, shrotriya brahmanishta from the Mundaka Upanishad. Great ways to look at what, what I'd call as scholar practitioners. Where's the problem? The problem is this. We have not much work from scholar practitioners. We have a lot of work from practitioners who tend to just share what they experience, can be very misleading, but very, very nourishing for them. Or we have scholars who are analyzing text or experience, but we don't have these two worlds coming together. So when I'm talking about a scholar practitioner, I'm not talking about an alien being. I'm talking about every one of you here. Now, you have the potential to be a scholar practitioner. Am I right? Yes or no? Yes, you have. You need to make the effort. Now, the moment we do that, the whole yoga authenticity gets transformed. So what I see, now here's a good, two examples of scholar practitioners. Now, Edwin Bryant. Here's Hariharananda Aranya. Now, you should look at this Basvati, which is one of the most authentic commentaries on, on uh, yoga as well. Now, why I show these two images is because it is not a case of Western ignorance and an Eastern enlightenment. That is not true. You can have scholar practitioners from all parts of the globe. The focus should be the scholar practitioner. So the conclusion I'm going to make, all right, which is this. The need for a critical mind with traditional perspectives is urgent. We need more and more scholar practitioners. Do you agree, my friends? We need more of that. Now, the efforts to publish scholar practitioner perspectives of yoga, Hatha Yoga, and Yoga Vedanta, we need that. We need more of this. And number three, triangulation of shastras from the dharma, artha, and karma perspectives as well. Remember, yoga was traditionally meant for the nivrti. We need to look at it from the pravirti sense, how it can impact all of us. And this responsibility does not lie with me. Who does it lie with? You. Now ask yourself if you can make one step, take one step forward to become a scholar practitioner. What does that mean? Beyond your practice on the mat, pick up a shastra or a text and start reading. That's the first step. With that, I end my presentation. Thank you.